0: All right. All right. Good to have you all here. How y'all doing? Doing good? Good. All right. Uh, My name is Mark. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. Really good to have you. If you're joining at one of our sites, good to have you there as well. Open up your Bibles. Matthew chapter 18. We are going through the gospel of Matthew just verse by verse by verse by verse. Uh, We've been doing so for a while and we'll still be in it for a while because we're at chapter 18 and there's 28 chapters. Bam! That's how we roll. Now, We come to a text. Um, Last time we were in the Gospel of Matthew, there was a story about a shepherd who would leave the 99 and actually go to reach one person who was lost. And now that kind of idea continues on, but in a different way. And this is kind of a, it's an interesting text. It's a weird text, Uh, especially for those of you who might be newer Christians. We have a lot of newer Christians in our church. You might not have been exposed to the ideas that Jesus, as a teacher... Uh, Is about to lay out for us is about to kind of get into something that is it's kind of countercultural to the way that we live our life because he starts to really tell us that Christianity is not just about this kind of thing that you joined and then we all kind of hang out with the celebratory spirit that's blind to the faults of our life. He says, when you join Christianity, there's something different going on. You you join a community, and that's a beautiful thing. That's an awesome thing. You join a people, and you're not just an autonomous individual anymore, and that's an awesome thing and all the benefits. But then there's this other side to it where there's an accountability, where there's things in our life that have derailed. There's things in our life called sin, where we're not aligned with God, and that we actually need help in our life to figure out what those things are. We can't figure it out ourselves. So we actually need people around us to help us, to actually call us out, to get into our life. And he really lays out, what are you supposed to do when there's people in your life that you see that are involved in sin? And, and how do we actually approach them? What's the process to deal with sin other than just talking behind their back, doing nothing? And he, and he, and he hits this amazing, sweet teaching that, that calls out two kinds of people, the kinds of people who are, Passive aggressive. Not that there's any kind of pe- passive aggressive people here uh, in this room in Canada, um, but the passive aggressive people, all right, who are just who just avoid, but then they talk. They're pretty jacked up behind your back. And then he calls out the aggressors, the people who just, who just want somebody to sin against them because they're all jacked up with Bible verses and a Jesus bumper sticker on their car and ready to go at them and say, I know what your sin is. I know what you did. Right? And he calls out both of these people groups and he says, no, no, no. There's a way better way of being human than this. And so that's what Matthew 18 is about. So hopefully you're there. Now, let me just, uh, there's a fundamental assumption here, which is that there's sin. Uh, and what we've got, to, and, and it needs to be addressed and dealt with. And, and what we've got to understand is before I, I talk about the how to address this, uh, let me uh, talk about the why. Why would we go after sin? Uh, Why would Jesus teach that we have to go after it in the lives of one another? It's because there's a beautiful image the New Testament gives about, about the church, which is that it's a body. And so if you think about the body, the body needs an immune system. The body just can't let disease happen. If there's something, if there's some kind of sickness that's welling up in your body, you need to go after it. You need to actually, if you have cancer, you need to go and cut it out. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, here's what I care about. I don't just care about kind of your moments of what you think you're involved in in the regard to the church and God. Or I want to go after your holiness. I want you to be—there's a purity, there's a righteousness that God is after in every single one of us. And there's no time that we kind of more— Paul talks about the idea of 1 Corinthians that we co-labor with God. And the reality is, when, when God looks to Israel in Leviticus, and Leviticus 11, he says, Be holy, therefore, because I am holy— he lays out this agenda for every single one of our lives, which is that God's purpose in our life is to be holy. So if that's true, he's got to go after sin. It's not just about our happiness. It's about our holiness. That's what God is after. So in some senses, there's, there's no time when we are more like God than when we're actually dealing with the purity of ourselves and the people around us, because we're trying to make them more like Jesus. We're trying to make them actually reflect the image of God in the world, and there's a power in that. And the reason for that is because you have to understand that you represent more than yourself now. When you became a Christian, you now represent God in the world. You are a reflection of God in the world. This is why the Bible gives an image that the church is the bride of Christ, right? Now, you know, guys, it doesn't mean individually. Don't freak out. You're like, me, right? It's... Collectively, the church is the bride of Jesus, is the wife of Jesus, and your call now is to represent that to the world every day that you walk around every time you go to work and so there's a holiness issue that has to be dealt with because how what would it be like if if my wife erin was just walking around town slandering me swearing all the time you know just totally misrepresenting our family i probably you know cheating on me with other guys i probably wouldn't just let that go and go well you know that's life i'd go hey woman wake up stop misrepresenting me you're married to me so you represent this life out there. You can't just go around and I'm going to be passive and not say anything. So here's Jesus looking at his bride saying, hey, stay on point. Clean up your life because there's a representative nature that you have of me to the world. And how often have we talked to people who have walked away from the church and the reason they've walked away is because they claim hypocrisy. They say, well, people believe this, but they didn't actually live it out. That's a holiness issue. So you and I, when we say we believe in God and we're trying to get our sex life right, our marriage life right, our money life right, but then we don't do it, that's the problem. That's the hypocrisy. And people walk away from the church all the time because of that. This is why Jesus is honing in and he's saying sin has to be dealt with because it's a holiness issue. I want you to get this right in your life because you represent me now. You don't get to live your little Canadian autonomous life where you're just Mark Clark and you do whatever you want and it's just me. No, no, no. The minute you claim Christ, you now represent me to the world. There's a witness. And every time that witness gets derailed, every time it's misrepresented, you have to go inside yourself and go, man, how do I represent well? How do I actually represent in regard to purity and holiness and godliness so I'm representing my husband Jesus well to the world? That's the point. And if you get that wrong, it's gotta be realigned. It's gotta be called out. My, um, so there's this woman that we hang out with in our church, uh, she's a friend of ours, and she looks just like my wife, all right? She, she's very similar, like look, people say their face structure's the same, like they just look alike, so when people see them, there's oftentimes, they mistake them. And so this one time, uh, she was telling me this story that she was out for uh, dinner with her husband recently, and they're having dinner, and, uh, and the waitress texts her friend, because her friend, you know, cycled around with us, and said, oh my goodness, the pastor of Village Church's wife is out for dinner with another man. All right? Like they're enjoying dinner together, having a glass of wine, like touching each other, like, right? And she's out, Mark's wife is out for dinner with another man. And the man is like, he's got more muscles, he's bulkier, right? He's bald, but he's bulky. And so, and so, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening. You know, tell your friends about it. Is this true? And so they had to, you know, cycle him up by the, she was ready to go up to the table as her waitress and just like slam the bill down and go, shame on you, woman, right? Right, she was ready to do this until about two hours later, everyone was able to track the text and realize that it wasn't my wife, it was our friend who looks just like my wife, but literally this happens all the time. And so they'll be like, hey, I saw you here the other day. Remember you were doing that thing? And my wife's like, I've never been here before. And they're like, what? And there's like this woman out there, right? And so the key is we couldn't just let that go. You got to track that down. You got to, this was a misrepresentation. This was off. This needs a realignment. We need to realize this was not my wife. There's truth here. we got to figure out truth. we got to understand it. we got to represent well. That's the why behind everything that Jesus is about to unpack. Now, how do we get in? He gets into now the how. So, Matthew 18, verse 15. First step in regard to sin. He gives four steps. I don't know how many we'll get through, but we'll see. Okay, first step, he says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So the first thing, underline the word alone, because you're not, people who are jacked up about sin, they tend to, and I've seen Christian leaders do this, where they will go online and they think in the world of social media, it's their job to hunt down sinners and declare it online, to get up and say dumb things on Twitter, that call out a fellow brother or sister in Christ and talk about it online and make fun of them and they think it's their job to somehow do this big uh, blog about it. No, no, no. He says, go and do it alone. Have these people even gone to that person and sat down with them and say, hey, I think there's sin in your life. I think there's these things in your life. This is what we are called to do. Now, we, some of you in this room are just hating this idea right now, the idea that you would have to go and confront sin. Because here's what Jesus says, you can't just let this stuff go. You have to not be passive. You have to actually go and approach your brother or your sister and say, listen, you actually sinned against me. You sinned against people. You use your money wrong. Your sex life's a disaster. Here's the thing about your marriage. And that the nature of being part of the community of Christ is that you actually have to go and, 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 and confront people a little bit. Do it alone. Do it in love, which is very important. Those of you, okay, so some of you, your issue is being passive. you know we'll constantly come back to this and so you just don't want to do this at all and you've never done this others of you are aggressors and you do this all the time and no one and you know how you know you're one of those no one hangs out with you anymore all right you're just too aggressive you're always looking for that you're like i I got my bible verses i read ezekiel this week i'm gonna go out and no one calls you anymore no one texts you no one hangs out with you because you're just constantly in their face about stuff That's not what Jesus is saying. Alone. There's a spirit in which we do it. Now, let let me give you an example of this. I have a friend who his his marriage was going off the rails a little bit, and there was another friend who had a concern about it, and he took him out for coffee, and here's what the spirit of it was. It was not, here's eight points to a better marriage and how you've totally failed. Here's what it was. Tears. Brokenness across the table of, this is what I see, and it's killing me, and I want to try to help. And right in that moment, the defenses go down. Because you can look across the table at someone who actually cares about you, not someone who's just out licking their chops to call sin out in your life. This is very important. The spirit of this is pastoral. The spirit of it is, I'm crying, I care for you. Because here's the thing about this, there's no one in this room that when this happens to you, and it should happen to you, there should be people coming into your life calling you out. When it happens, the the, the natural tendency of ourselves is not to be like, woohoo! I got called out today. I'll adjust that. Good point. And then move on with our life. That is not what we do. We get defensive. We kick back. I had two friends. It wasn't a a sin issue. But I remember when I first became a Christian, my first uh, first year of Bible college, I prayed with a couple guys. And a couple weeks later, they came up to me and they said, Hey, we want to talk to you about your prayers. And I'm like, Okay, what's up? And they go, we don't like the fact that you say Father God all the time. All right. So the guy who uh, who trained me up to be a Christian before I ever entered the church, he would always say, F- you know those people, you know, Father God, Father God, Father God, we pray Father God, and we love you, Father God. Just, There's people who say that over and over and over again. It's like, okay, we've addressed him, we know he's there. We know who you're talking to, we don't need it over. So I was saying that in my prayer life, so that we don't like the fact that you always say father God. Now, I, in in retrospect, that's a good call out, because it's like, I don't need to keep addressing God, God, God over and over again. So I like it in retrospect. At the time, I didn't have that perspective, all right? So I wasn't like, oh, thank you, brothers, for this great exegesis on my prayer life. I was like, what? I don't, you you say, Father God, too much. And they're like, no, we don't. I'm like, you pray too much. They're like, what? I'm like, What? Right and I just laughed. (laughs) It's like jerks. This was a defensive mode. You can't do that You have to get to a point in your life where you receive it But the only way people are going to receive it is if you come with a spirit of of pastoring them Where you are literally broken There's tears. There's I actually care about your life and I've had this happen in my life a bunch of years ago a couple years into village. I uh, it was just kind of me I had no staff. It was myself sitting in a Starbucks and 1,200 people, which is not a good ratio to live your life uh, in regard to being a pastor. And so... Uh, most books, if you read them, it's like make sure you hire another pastor for every 150 people. And it's like it was me and 1,200, and I was doing my best. And what started happening were there were all these young girls that started contacting me about the life change that was happening in their life. And they were 21 and 22, and I would, you know, bring, you know, uh, uh, we, we got an office at some point. There were some people around, so we would, you know, be in the office, and they'd be Facebooking me and texting me, and here's my number, and let's talk to them. And so as a good pastor, I was just like, yes, I shall, you know, save all the 21-year-old girls, you know. And so I just started kind of doing that, and I didn't realize that it was actually bothering my wife because she's like, you know, you should probably just get some, you know, women to develop them and pour into them, you know, whatever." I'm like, oh, I shall be the pastor of all, you know. So I didn't realize it was bothering my wife, and so she would, you know, allude to it, and I wouldn't really do anything. Finally, I went out for dinner with a a set of friends, and uh, these friends looked at me, and they said, listen, you need to figure out how to do this because it's, it's enough that it bothers your wife. You don't need any more explanation other than the fact that it's something that bothers her. Guys, this is a marriage principle. I know sometimes you're like, there is no logic to this. What is happening right now in this argument, there is no logic to this at all. That's not the issue. The question is, if it bothers her, that's enough to shut up. Or change or repent or whatever and same goes with the with the wife to the husband this bothers me it's like okay doesn't make sense but all right i'll roll with it and so these friends literally it was it was this call out in this moment where right in that moment i i, I went oh my gosh you're right and i changed how i function but i needed two people to come objectively and call it out in me because here's the thing sin is so insidious we don't know it until a mirror is held up in front of us that says, look, man, wake up. Because every single one of us can justify our sin so easily. Every single one of us can open up the Bible, and this is how we do it. We, we have a view on ourselves, and so we read the Bible, and we think there should be little asterisks in every verse of the Bible that says, I know I said this, I'm the God of the universe, and I said this for everybody else, but I don't mean it for you. All right? That's how we tend to think. So whether it's like our sexual sin, and we're like reading, we're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Well, I know this is for everybody else, but he's got to have like an asterisk for me, a little footnote. That's, I can do sex different than the way he lays it out. I can do money and materialism different than the way he lays it out. I can do community different than the way he lays it out. We justify everything in our brain. And sometimes it takes people around us to hold a mirror up, to wake us up and go, hey, Wake up. Listen, do you see this rhythm in your life at all? And so here we see Jesus. The first step is you need to actually go to people pastorally pastorally, lovingly and say, listen, there's sin in your life. This takes courage to do it, to actually. But some of you right now, you actually need to think about someone in your life where this is grating at you and set up that meeting like this week. Like before you see me again, you should set up this meeting and go out and say, listen, my heart is broken because I'm, I'm seeing this in your life and I need to call it out. All right, so that's step number one. And he says, this is the, the form that we're supposed to do it. And he says, if we do this well, here's what's going to happen. Look at the, look at the verse, uh, verse 15. You have gained your brother. Now, Literally in the Greek, that's the word win. And what we have to understand is that win is a good thing. Win is a, is a beautiful thing. Win is a restoration. You have won your brother. When we win something. You, you know if you play sports. I, uh, I don't play a ton of sports, but I play golf. And so golfing, I'm always wanting to win, win, win. I went golfing um, this week with some friends. And uh, I golf with this one guy who's better than me. And I'm constantly trying to beat him. I'm constantly trying to get out of the, I'm just waiting for that moment where he totally messes up and I have a good game and I can beat him because I want to win, because winning's good. And so we're out golfing um, this week and breaking 80 for a golfer is a big deal. I've never been able to really break 80. I kind of hit 80, 81, 82, and I hover around that. But I was slamming it this week. I was like, boom, boom, boom. I'm draining putts, everything's happening. And he pars the front nine and then we go to, so I'm like, oh yeah, he's gone. And then all of a sudden he starts to mess up on the back nine and I'm like, all right. I mean, sorry, bro. And so, so every time he puts it into the trees and the bunker, I'm like, oh, man, that was a missed shot. And inside, I'm celebrating. I'm like, dude, I might get this guy this time. He's gone completely off the rails, and I start gaining a stroke, two strokes every hole. And we start coming up. So we're coming up to the last three holes, and I'm like, I might actually get him. We get to the 16th hole. He takes out a nine iron, and he puts it in the hole, hole in one. All right, now... We didn't know that at the time. And so we literally came up and we're like, where's your ball? And the, the one guy's like, oh, I think, it's, I think it's back in the bushes there. You went way over the green. And I was like, oh, man, too bad. I'm like, I'm going to win. It's so legit. So he's rumbling around in the forest and I'm try, you know, pretending to help him find it. I'm like, hey, I don't know. It's over here. I don't know. All right? I got to beat him. I got to beat him. And then he walks up to the hole. He's like, it's in the hole. I'm like, yay. All right. So we took a picture. I'll show you the picture. This is the picture of us on, uh, on the hole. If you look into my face, I'm kind of happy, but not really. Like, behind my eyes, I'm like, I'm pointing at you because, you know, we're supposed to be happy for you, but I kind of hate you. And I'm disappointed and I'm going to lose now. Which is exactly what happened. Alright? So, winning is a good thing. We always want to win. We're jacked up to win. I was playing a board game with my kids recently and they were like, I, I'm like, oh yes, I won. And they're like, yeah, you know, Dad, winning's not the most important thing. We all had fun, and that's what's important. I'm like, who told you that? They're like, Mom. I'm like, eh, wrong. Winning. All right, Now, The point is winning's a good thing. He says, if you do this right, you're going to win your brother. And meaning, what's a win in regard to the kingdom? The win is you, you stop going down the route in your life that's derailing your life. You stop going down the route where you're hurting yourself and hurting other people and hurting the church. You turn around you get life again, you get joy again, you actually get a, the kingdom comes in your life, the will of God gets done in your life and something beautiful takes place. If you ask an addict, why are they motivated to stop? It's because they got some perspective at one point and said, man, because there's gonna be more joy on the other side of this thing. There's gonna be more freedom and less slavery if I stop what I'm doing for myself and for my family. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, we need to get a win. The kingdom needs to win. And if you want to win, you have to go after sin of the people around you. So the first step is you go alone, you go humbly, you go pastorally, you go with tears. And you say, I see this in your life. Now, there's a second step. What if that doesn't work? He says, verse 16, but if he does not listen and this is he or she, if he or she does not listen to you, you've gone out with them and called them out, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, this is where things get a little wonky because you and I are very private people. We don't like this communal thing. We're private people. Our garage goes up. We drive out. We drive to work. We come home. Our garage goes up. We go in. The garage closes. We're in for the night. We're not into communal stuff. We're not into letting other people know about things in our life. This is between me and you, my relationships between me and the Lord. You shouldn't, that's, he blows all that up. He says, that's not what the kingdom's about. What you need to actually do is if a brother or sister is caught in sin, you go and approach them and they don't repent. They don't say, okay, I'm going to change my life. Then you bring two or three people with you and you knock on the door and you go, hey, now we're all here. And you're like, oh man, Tom knows now what is going on. Why did you bring why did you bring those two into it and the reason is now here's what you have to understand you got to make sure sure those two care as well to the point of where they actually would weep in that moment these two people that you bring to actually call a brother or sister out in regard to sin it's not like you're looking around you're kind of teaming up on someone that you just don't like that's not what we're talking about. Like, man, I hate Joey. Joey's a real jerk to me, and he hasn't been able to work out his jerkiness, but I know a couple other guys who think Joey's a jerk. Hey, do you guys still hate Joey? Yeah, come on, let's go. All right. That's not what he's talking about. That is not what he's talking He's talking about this insidious sin that's starting to affect community that has no sense of i know what i'm doing is wrong and i and i'm just going to continue doing it all of that it's two or three people coming around them communally because there's of course strength in numbers and these two people come as witnesses and they say hey listen this is something that needs to happen in your life we need to call you out and so it's very interesting now if you start thinking about the two kinds of people the people the aggressors. And the people who are passive, because some of you are passive. Some of you are like, there's no way I'm going to take two people who love this person and go out with them. I'm just not going to do it. You're like the uh, the SNL skit I saw last week where they, the guy was in the turtle shirt. You're very passive, where if there's any kind of conflict, you just want to kind of become a turtle. You just want to disappear, right? Because I know a lot of you are Canadians, and you're like, oh my goodness, there's tension in the room, and you just want to, like... You know The shirt in the, the commercial saying like there's conflict and then his shirt just goes up and then he just goes inside of his shirt like a turtle right? Some of you are like that ah, you just want a turtle you want your di- you just want to disappear Your legs go inside of your shell and you're just like I'm not here anymore because I feel there's conflict in the room Jesus goes don't you understand the part of godliness is actually approaching this and going you do conflict once And then you get two brothers and you do it again if there's unrepentance and it's for those of you who are aggressive This is done in love this is done in love. It's not done. You're licking your chops, going, "Where? Who can I do today? Who can I get back at today?" That's not what he's talking about. And so the second step is you get two people and you go and you actually do it. In a, in, and when I when I think about aggressors and I think about passive people, I begin to understand. See, here's here's what Jesus is trying to get at. We don't come at these people aggressively because we need to understand we're supposed to speak the truth in what? In love. So you're supposed to view this almost like a parenting exercise where if i looked at my kids and and my let's say as i i I listened to to one guy talk about this and he said let's say my my daughter ran out into the street and she was just playing with a knife out in the street running around in traffic it would be really dumb of me if i was the passive type who just went well you know she has fun with it we'll see how it goes that'd be dumb right on the other hand it would be dumb if I ran out onto the street and picked her up and started shaking her aggressively. Don't do that. You know, that would also be dumb. Both are bad parenting. You could be too aggressive and you can be too passive. What Jesus says is we've got to strike up the truth in love. Or if I walk out there, I say, honey, you can't run around with knives all over the neighborhood. You can't, you can't go out in the street because here's what'll happen. And I'll walk her over to a dead raccoon with the guts hanging out and say, you see what happens? If you play in the street, you see what happens? Look, look. That's what happens. Now, is that good parenting or bad parenting? Some of you are like, your kid's going to end up in a ward. All right, listen. The point is, that's a good father. Because I cared for her. I taught her. I loved her. I brought her along. I didn't shake her and I didn't ignore her. Some of you you just live in those two extremes. And you're not doing kingdom properly. You're not doing kingdom the way that Jesus wants you to do kingdom. And so he says, what are we going to do? See, what our approach is, man, I don't know, it's not my business. This is between him and the Lord. Again, this gets blown up by Jesus and he goes, "No, no, no. You are your brother's keeper." this is the bitter part of community this is how it's not about you know uh, uh, galatians chapter six if you read galatians chapter six paul climaxes galatians where he says bear one another's burdens and in that moment you fulfill the law of christ now think about that for a second bear one another's burdens that's the spirit of two or three witnesses coming together i can't I know a lot of you aren't Lord of the Rings fans, but I can never read Galatians 6 without thinking of Lord of the Rings. Bear one another's burdens. When people watch the movies of Lord of the Rings, sometimes they, they misunderstand what the whole point You know who the hero of Lord of the Rings is? People think it's Frodo. It's not. Who's the actual hero of Lord of the Rings if people have read the book? Sam! Samwise, right? Samwise Gamgee. It ain't Frodo. Frodo bears the ring, but he can't actually bear it, so he's walking up Mount Doom, and he's getting destroyed, and it starts to weigh him down, and so Samwise picks him up, right? Rudy picks him up, and he runs, for those of you, all right, who were born before 1989, all right? and he runs up the mountain with him to destroy the ring because he's bearing the burden of, it's Frodo's burden bear, but he bears it. He picks him up and he runs up with him. That's why even in the book, you read that big thick book, at the end of it, you walk away and you say, the hero is not Gandalf, it's not Aragorn, it's not Frodo, it's Sam, the humble servant who came alongside of his friend and bore the burden. And here's the two or three witnesses. Here's the reality. You should not be at the table calling out the sin of people until you have tried to bear their burden yourself. Until you have given it a shot, until you have come alongside of them and said, let me carry you alone without all the fanfare. So you try one, they kick it back in your face. You bring two or three others They kick it back in your face. What are we supposed to do? We've tried to bear the burden. We've tried to lovingly, pastorally, with tears, call them out. We've tried to get their life back on the rails. What's the next step? He says, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses, now, tell it to the church. That's an interesting thing. This is the second time, I think the only time in the whole gospel of Matthew, Jesus used the word church. It's actually the only time Jesus uses the word church these two times. Here and in chapter sixteen, in all the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Matthew is the only gospel writer who records the word church. And when we hear the word church, we tend to think of it with all of our modernistic. But that's not the way Jesus used the word. The Greek word is ekklesia. it means gathering or assembly. Right? It doesn't mean like structures. And and we say we're going to church like it's a building or something. That's not what he's saying. It's, like, it's not tell it to a building. It's Tell it to the assembly, the gathered ones. Now, but it also doesn't mean the, tell it to the megachurch. This is very important, and this is where churches have fumbled, where they've got a sin of a brother, and they go after him, and he, he, he repents. so there's two or three more go after him. And then it goes, well, tell it to the church. So then they get up on a Sunday, and it's like, well, we have eight services, and so here's Tom. Tom got caught in adultery. We tried to approach him. He didn't repent. So here's some pictures. And here's how we know and, and, and let's make sure all eight services get it, guys. And all three campuses need to make sure that Tom Cheetah's wife, here's the pictures, here's the dates. And that's not what he's talking about. The church was the was the localized assembly of people who knew this person, who was gathered around this person, who was in relationship with this person. This is a community group context. This is the, the, your friends, your family, the people around you, the Christians around you. This is them. It's, it's getting them involved and telling it to them and saying, listen, this is the sin that this person is caught in. We need to try to address it and deal with it. And so that the people around that person become aware and deal with it. That's what he means by the word church. It was always a localized assembly. A small group of people who actually will bleed for that person. That's the point. Not the people who don't care about them. The people who will bear. Who are the people in this moment who would bear and have tried to bear this person's burdens? Let's bring them into this. Let's get them involved. That's the point. And then he says... Now, the other thing about, beautiful thing about what he just said, tell it to the church, Just think about this. It, it puts all the beautiful weight of this on you, not me, which is good, because I'm busy. And what I mean by that is, in the Reformation, there was this beautiful doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, 1 Peter 1. What happens in the modern church is you think, it's very important, you think it's my job to deal with your sin and the sin of your friends and the brokenness of your marriage and the, the destruction of your money and the things that have happened at work. And so, so I get constant phone calls. Fix my fix my daughter, fix my son, fix my situation, fix me, fix my marriage. Let me come in and and talk about this. And it's and it's and, and this, what's happened in the modernistic mindset the church has become the people here and 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 the church and, and the people become the observers of the people doing church like notice he doesn't say leaders bishops elders deacons committees boards doesn't say any of that he says the church which is who you take it to the church the people around that you not me you're the pastor you know a guy is, is, is hitting his wife? Don't sit around and wait for a meeting with me. Go knock on his door. Hey, I'm the church. Stop it. And then beat him for the cause of Christ. If you don't... that it's a committee's job a board's job an elder's job to chase this stuff down of course we can do that to the best of our ability you're the church you take the power back take the keys back take the authority back that's the point be the church don't go to a church don't show up to a church be the church that's you priesthood of all believers own it shepherd lead influence serve that's his point all of us every single one of that's where the power is you want to see a movement across canada and cities it's not going to happen by a group of paid people it's going to happen when you get lit up and you go to work and you're and you're hanging out at the soccer field and you're that's when it gets when you're on mission and you're actually doing the kingdom life that he's laying out for every single one of us to do that's the power So embrace it. Don't push it back on us. Don't kick it back and say, well, you deal with it. No, he just said the church. Then, if that doesn't work, the saddest point of all, truly I say to you, he says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, to those family and friends and mother and cousin and guy who's led his community group for six years and and the people he's had meals with over and over, and the people he served with in kids' ministry and, and uh, hanging out at the men's retreat. And, and all these people are t- crying and saying, Man, wh- what's going on? And he's told all those people, and he still refuses to listen to them. Then what? To listen to the church, let him, verse 17, be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning you got to cut him off. This is the hardest thing of all. That there comes a point where... Now, we're not talking about non-Christians here. This is where, this is where the church uh, gets wonky. Where they start going, I'm going to cut, you know, cut my non-Christian friend off because he's sinning. It's like, I know that's what they do. <laughs> they don't know Jesus yet. Of course they're going to sin. He's not talking about that. Read 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul says, I admonish you not to expel the sexually immoral brother among you who is of the world... But those who are of the church, when they're sexually immoral, expel them. He says, if you had to expel the sexually immoral people from among you who were not of the church, then you couldn't live in the world. You would just have to leave the world, Paul says. That'd be dumb. Don't do that. Lean into them. Be on mission for them. It's the people who have said, I believe in Jesus. I'm representing Christ in the world. And there's a malice. There's 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 an intent to deceive. There's a wolf about them because they're still part of this thing but they're living something completely different he says at that moment there comes a point where the best thing you can actually do for them you've pleaded you've done your best is cut them off treat them like a tax collector and a gentile meaning from a jewish perspective that was they weren't part of the covenant people of god and they weren't eating with them and they weren't hanging with them because that was to solidify their hypocrisy And Jesus says, you need to cut them off. And Paul, over and over again, this is not the only time in the Bible, over and over again, Paul says, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And the reason is because it will cause them to hit rock bottom and wake up. And so you cut them off and you pray and you pray and you pray. And you hope that at the the first glimmer of repentance, the first glimmer of, okay, I'll change, then you embrace them again and you bring them in and you come around them and you support them. But there comes a point which sometimes, we know this, when we're talking to kids and we're talking tough love, there's a point at which there's a rock bottom that people need to hit to wake up to feel the glory of Christ again. And that's the hope. That they will become so isolated and it might take time that they will come and repent and come back to Jesus, come to value him. Because his point is, listen, you don't get to sin in a vacuum anymore. The church is a community and everything you do impacts everybody else. There's no such thing as an isolated person anymore. And you cause, with your sin, you create toxicity for other people and you become a wolf and you read... uh, Acts chapter 19, and Paul's saying, "Listen, when wolves are among you, you got to figure out who they are, and you got to make sure they don't start hurting the sheep." And there are so many young Christians, people who are easily influenced, in the midst of a church like ours. It's very important that we understand this. Now, there's ways that this practically works out in people's lives, where your sin just starts impacting other people. Think about—I I, I did young adult ministry for six years, and I can't tell you how many parents would come to me and they'd say, "My kid's off the rails." My kid graduated high school and they don't care about God anymore. They don't care about Christianity anymore. They're going off on their own life. They're doing this, they're doing that, they're doing that. I said, okay, well, let's unpack this. What did, you, what did you do in regard to youth group? Did they set aside Wednesday night and get community and come and worship Jesus and have leaders around them? No, we had soccer. Okay, you had soccer for 10 years. Then would you come to church? Well, when they didn't have baseball in the summer, we'd try to get to church once a month. And then I'm looking at them going, let's add all this up. And you're blaming me? Because Every week you taught your kid as I've heard one writer say that kicking around a silly ball Is more important than the God of the universe and now you're asking other people to take that that's collateral damage For your sin Our sin affects people Everywhere we go and so the question becomes that's the why that's why Jesus is so jacked up about this He's not trying to be mean He's trying to say, I have your joy in front of my face, your pleasure forevermore in front of my face. And this is the best way to get there. And for every time, some of you are sitting here right now, you're like, oh my goodness, I have sinned in my life. That's one of the exercises. As I go to pray, think about the things in your life right now that, man, people could call. I might get a phone call this week. (laughs) And start to give those things to Jesus and understand that first and foremost, you go to him alone and he will forgive you because what he's done on the cross for you, that he took all those sins on himself. He rose again to give you life on the other side of that, that you're not supposed to feel the weight and the burden like religion about this. You're supposed to go, my gosh, he came and actually dealt with this. But what are those things in your life that you can start looking into and go, man, this is stuff that needs to be dealt with because it's toxic for the people around me. Father, I just do pray that as we reflect on those things as a church, that we would hear the spirit in which you taught this, that we would understand the paradigm of a kingdom life so much that we would go, I mean, this is what you're wanting for your own glory and for our good, that we'd embrace these tough words because we know that, that talking to us like this actually will soften our life. And if you, if you played passive with us, that it will harden us. That is the worst thing for us. And I pray that we would take that same spirit in the lives of people around us, that we would not be aggressors, but we would not be passive. We would strike up the speaking the truth in love because of the power of the cross. I pray you would do this among us as a church. We would be pure because of it and that your power would come because of it in regard to our witness to the world. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen.